1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writing, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that, I'm, that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. Father, I pray that today you would speak to our hearts. Lord, you know, um, we have all come here from various weeks. Lord, some have come from, well, very good weeks. This week has been just a wonderful week. Others, it's just been, well, it's just been another week. Nothing big, nothing small, nothing radical, nothing tragic. And yet I know that there are also those that have come here today with heavy hearts. Um, Lord, because they've had some difficult days this week. But Lord, we've all come here to this place, regardless of where we've come from. We've congregated in this place because we want to hear from you. We've congregated in this place because we need to be touched by you. We need to know that, God, you're speaking to us. We know you care for us. We know you love us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today. Help us to know you better when we walk out of this place and we know you right now. And so, Lord, I pray that you would anoint my mouth, you would anoint my mind. Speak those things that came from your throne. Use me as a vessel, Lord, to speak. Speak to me, God. Yes, I'm saying speak to all of us in this room, but, Lord, I pray you speak to my heart also. Too often times, pastors will stand and they will speak to the hearers. But I pray, God, that you speak to me also. For we're all in here to be ministered to by you. To become more like you. To know what it is that you want, what you like, what you desire. And so, Lord, we, we offer ourselves into your hands right now. I pray, Lord, if there's any in this room that right now this prayer has been kind of wacko <laughs> to them. I pray, Lord, that you, you open their eyes. You open their eyes and you open their ears today to hear you. Lord, let them see you as I've seen you, as, as we have maybe not physically seen you, but Lord, I have I've been with you and I know you and I know what you are and I know what you desire. And what an awesome life it has been since, Lord, you saved my soul. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't have that relationship with you yet, Lord, I pray that this day would be a day that would just make sense to them. And that, Lord, you'd meet them where they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
um, he uses this word servants, and it's a little unlike Paul to use this word that he's using here, because typically he does use the word servants, and the word that he typically uses is the word doulos in the Greek. Doulos in the Greek. Um, doulos in the Greek literally means slave or bond slave. Um, if you've been, you know, with a, with a church for quite some time, if you've listened to messages, you will have probably come across a pastor, me included, that have looked at this kind of a passage and looked at, at the word doulos and, and, and understand the word to mean slave or bond slave. And I know that, that some of you have heard, and I've actually even taught. And, and this is a part of sanctification. This is a part of growing. This is a part of learning more and more as you grow in the faith. Even as I have studied for this passage, I see there has been maybe a little bit of a tweak in the way that I've looked at bond slave. I've oftentimes taught, and you have also been taught by maybe, maybe many other pastors about a bond slave. A slave being somebody who is not willfully being a slave. They just are bought and sold and they are a slave. A bond slave being that one that would be free to not be a slave, but then selling themselves under the yoke of a master and becoming what is considered a bond slave. And, you know, the whole idea of having the ear pierced with an awl uh, there at, at the doorpost of, a, of uh, the barn or, or whatever you have there uh, on the field of the farmer or the master, whoever it is, and you have basically committed yourself to that master for the rest of your life, a bond slave, a free man, free woman who desires to come under the yoke for the rest of their life to be a slave of that master, doulos, bond slave. But oftentimes they and I have correlated it to a passage back in the Old Testament, back in Exodus chapter 21, talking about a debt slave, a debt slave. A debt slave and a bond slave are not necessarily synonymous, as I've kind of come to find out. And, you know, as you study and, and research more and begin to look and dig in, and, and you begin to understand that a bond slave and a slave are synonymous terms. A slave is one who just doesn't have any rights. A slave is one who literally is a slave. He's one who's in a permanent relation of servitude to another. His will is being altogether consumed in the will of the other. A Strong's definition is someone who belongs to another with no ownership rights of their own. And, and though I do see... Uh, some similarities, and I see some connection of, of Paul being a free man, being able to, to willfully come before and, and, and offer his life to the Lord and say, I am now yours. There's much truth and, and all truth in that. He has the right to do that. The problem is, is that Paul didn't look at that even as his right. Paul references many times. He actually references twice in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to get to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, you're no longer your own, but you've been bought with a price. Paul says, I've been bought with a price. Paul, Paul he says in Galatians, he says, listen, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Paul recognized that when he became a Christian, when he recognized who Jesus Christ was... His life as 
Saul, which was his name before, it, it ceased to exist for him. His life was no longer his. It was now owned by the Lord. My Lord is my master. Jesus Christ has become my master. And though the parallel of a debt slave that is we find back in Exodus chapter 21, if you go back and you look at the definition of debt slave, it's basically a slave who has been purchased to do some work. And if it's a Jew, they had seven years that they were working. And, 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 and if a master gives you know, a, 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 a wife to this slave and, after, and, and they had children and what have you, after this slave, he is, uh, worked his, his seven years and it's time for him to go. He can go. He's free to leave. Um, if he has a wife and kids because it had been given to him by his master and he goes, well, I want to take my wife and kids with me. Well, they aren't yours. They were mine that were given to you as the master. And, and, and so as the slave would say, well, I'm free, but I love my wife and my kids so much. I want to stay. And so therefore, I will become a debt slave to you. I will, I will give my life to you. Because I want to give my life with my family. I want to live my life with my family. And, and therein is the definition of a, of a debt slave back in Exodus chapter 21. Some have tried to parallel it with a bond slave, and yet nowhere, in, in, nowhere where the word bond slave is used, Scripture or out of Scripture, does it talk about a free man becoming a slave. And, and so I know that I'm kind of nitpicking on this item and yet I'm not because if we really look at what Paul's saying he's saying listen my life isn't my own and and I know that that's not the the word that we're using there doulos you know the word that we're we're using here is a different word but doulos we find in Romans chapter one you you know Paul a slave of Jesus Christ verse one of chapter one of Romans some of your Bibles will say Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Some will say Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant basically comes and it was just a, a, a word that, that morphed from a word that was bound slave. I was bound to be your slave. I'm bound as a slave, bond slave. I'm bound as a slave to you. I have no rights. And the cool thing about that is is, and, and I know that we use, if I'm using the word slave, for us, especially living in our society today, what negativity is elicited in our minds because we think of racial issues, slavery under racial issues. And we know that we still struggle with many racial tensions in our country, especially even today. And so slave is a negative term to us in such a way that we don't like to talk about it from the pulpit because it's just a very, very sticky issue. We don't like it. We don't like to talk about that. Well, know this. This is what they were living in. They were living in an era where there were slaves. And it wasn't necessarily because it was a racial issue. People were just slaves. There were slaves and there were owners. And, and, and Paul because he knew that people understood about slavery, he understood about slavery, they understood about slavery, 
he would call himself, I'm a slave. I have no rights to myself. Paul was, was establishing in you and in me and in the hearers of anybody that he would, he would speak to or who would read his letters, he was establishing a precedent in his life that was hopefully going to spread to the whole of the church. And that is this, I don't own my own decisions. They're not mine anymore. My life no longer belongs to me. My life is at the discretion of my master. And for us, that's a tough thing to get beyond, isn't it? That's a tough thing for us to listen to. Wait a minute. You're calling me a slave? I'm not a slave to anybody. Wait a minute. There's many different forms of slavery. There's many different forms of masters. You know, to whom you submit yourself to, the Word of God, scripturally, biblically, in, heavenlies, in heavenly economics, it says that you are that one's master. I mean, immediately we come and we think of the big three, right? Alcohol, drugs, and sex. Those things are bad things, and those things are things that we can become very, very addicted to. But there's many other things that we can become addicted to that are not healthy. You know, there can be an addiction to money. Or the love of money. Or the desire to acquire and attain wealth as a driving force to a person's life. That can be an addiction. And having that addiction means that you've allowed money to become your God. And your decisions are based upon what... What will gain and attain and maintain your wealth, your portfolio? And so your decisions, even spiritual decisions, are centered around, well, is it going to be financially feasible for me to do that? My business needs me, but churches today, my business needs me. I'd rather, I think I'm going to go to business than go to church. Not to say that there are times where you know, you're called into business and what have you. But there are others that might look at it and go, well, a Sunday I can, I can make money and I can continue to make money and I can make more money if I do this and it would be better for my portfolio, it would be better for my wealth, it would be better for my bank account if I spend time at work rather than in the house of the Lord. And so what I'll do, we all do it, we justify it and say, well, I'll find another church that actually meets on a day that I don't have to go to work. And so a decision is not based on the Lord. A decision is based on money. Money is your driving force. You see? It may not be money. It could be, it could be electronics. That's a modern vice of us today, isn't it? Here I am right here. I've got a I, as if I need two clocks. I've got a clock here and a clock there. All right? <laughs> this one's like big. It's saying, ah, 10, 57, 50, you know. Here it's going. Here it's 58. You just wasted a minute, you know. And, and then I have this electronics. And I'm going, wow. Now this, you can't live without. I'm just joking. You can live without it. You can live without it. I don't know how I did it before, but I do it. 
I love what, you know, the opportunities that this has afforded to me. The worship team, look at this. It's just, it's revolutionized us. It really has. I mean, it's been awesome. You know, before we'd spend all this time flipping through pages. See that big binder back there? Adam, hold that binder up right there. That's just, that's Christine's and she's organized. If you saw mine, mine's like twice that thick and it's just messy. And they go, okay, we're going to play this song. All right. All right. And we're 15 minutes trying to find it, you know. But now, with these things, oh. we, we go in there and we go, oh, hey, we want to we wanna, we wanna play, you know, lead me to the cross. Oh, lead me to the cross. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, there it is. Boop. And lead me to the cross comes up. It's just the coolest thing in the world. Well, no, that's not the coolest thing in the world, but it is a cool thing if you're on the worship team. It's a cool, pretty cool thing. But electronics can, can become a vice. They can become a vice. You know, Bob was, Bob uh, Clark, is he here today? He's not here today. Well, let's talk about him. Bob was sharing yesterday in the morning, you know, we had a men's breakfast in here in the morning and Bob was talking about how he saw a, a, a man and his son coming out to go to the restaurant yesterday as we were sitting in here and he says, and the, the father was on his electronic device, I think it was a tablet, and he was sitting there like this and the son was just kind of standing there, he didn't really have anything to do, but the dad was just going away at it. And Bob goes, you know, that father is missing so much with his son by burying his face in his electronics. And, and you know, I, very tongue-in-cheek, I said a statement that oftentimes we'll use to justify these things. I said, Bob, how do you know but that he wasn't ordering tickets for Bush Gardens that he's going to surprise his kids with here in just a second over, over breakfast? And he goes, oh, justify it all you want, you know. You know. We justify electronics. But see, electronics can become a god to us, can't they? They can become a god to us. Maybe a friend's. Maybe, maybe a relationship, maybe, maybe the, the willingness to acquire or attain or maintain friendships, even at the cost of your own personal convictions, integrity, or morality, or spiritual life, that is what drives your life. Does my friend actually accept me for going to church? Does my friend actually accept me for the, for the views of being a Christian? And if not, well then, I like my friend very much, and I don't want to lose that relationship, so I'm just going to not really be a Christian around them. You see, you've made a God out of friendship. Your God, your master, is deciding what you're going to do and how you're going to do it in order to maintain what your God is. And so Paul says, my God is in the heavens. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is Jesus Christ. He's my God. He's my master. Every decision that I make must first look at him and see what his decision would be in my life. I am a slave to that. 
and I make no bones about it, and there's not a negative connotation in there because my master is good. My master is righteous. My master is holy. My master only loves to bless me and direct me in places that will grow me and mature me and take me into places that will please him, which eventually and ultimately will please me. Because I will see that God is using me as a tool in his tool belt. And, and what a glorious thing to begin. If God created man, he must know how man ticks. Many people think, man, if I become a Christian, if I become a believer in the Lord, my life is going to become so boring. And I think, wow, you've got a really skewed view of who God is. Think about it just for a second. Let's just connect a couple of dots here, gang. He created you. He knows what makes you happy. He knows what makes you sad. He knows what makes you content. He knows what makes you fulfilled. He knows what drives you every single day of your life. He's the one that put that drive there. He's the one that created it in the first place. And you're saying, by saying, well, if I become a Christian, I'm going to be living a very dull and non-existent life, a very discontented life. You have the wrong view of who God is, my friend. You don't, you don't understand who God is. He created you not simply to live your life the way that you think it needs to be lived. If He created you knowing that if you give yourself to Him, you surrender, you submit yourself completely to Him, He knows what makes you tick. He is going to fulfill you. He's going to give you a contentment that you'll never, ever receive in any other manner. Oh, there's substitutions. You know, the Bible says, hey, sin is pleasurable for a season. But you all know that season ends and all of a sudden that, that pleasurable season, it comes crashing down. Any of you who have ever been drunk, sure was fun getting to that place, wasn't it? When you're hugging that white porcelain god that you won't ever even touch in that restaurant or in that bar that you're in and you're sick and you're feeling very very bad and you go into that into that toilet where you you wouldn't even go in to 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 touch man you wouldn't you know you only go number 1 in those things man you aren't going to touch those seats you're not going and yet you found yourself on the ground hugging that thing going, oh, I like the coolness of this toilet. Oh, That's disgusting. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but it comes crashing down. It comes crashing down very quickly if you try to find your joy in anything other than the Lord. And I know that that was an extreme, but it's in every single aspect of our life, gang. God knows what makes you tick. Paul, he uses words like slave to say, I'm not my own. Doulos, I'm not my own. I actually am owned by God. And I have to, I don't have an opinion. That's what Paul's saying. I don't have an opinion. The opinion that I have is null and void. It only matters what the master says. 
And I know that that might be scary for all of us in this room to go, well, wait a minute. That places me, that places us in a very vulnerable position if we're willing to completely not, not toe dip into Christianity. I'm going to give Jesus my big toe. But I'm going to keep the vast majority of my body out because I can't trust him to make the right decisions in my life because I think I know better. But if you can be like Paul and say, hey, you know what? I believe he's a good master and the, the decisions that he tells me to do and the decisions that I am to follow, I'm to follow every single thing that he wants me to do if I truly am a slave. But he's only going to lead me in places. He's going to lead me in the way of righteousness. He's going to lead me in a place of fulfillment. He's going to lead me in a place of contentment. He's going to lead me in a place where I know that if I'm following him, I'm actually fulfilling the, the actual purpose of my life. When I get to a point where I recognize that God means me no ill harm, but God means for the best of my growth. Paul says, there's no more toe dipping, man. I'm jumping in with both feet, man. My whole life is about Christ. I'm a slave to him. He's a good master and everything that he wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. It's what prompts Paul. We're going to see here in verse 11. We won't get to it today. But he'll say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, if you want to know how to live your life, if you want to know, then do what I do. Why? Because I've sold myself to the Lord. I've surrendered everything that I am to the Lord. The decisions that I have, they're no longer mine. They're his. I have no ownership to my life. The word, though, you go, okay, that's neat. So are we studying Romans? Or are we in 1 Corinthians 4? Because you started this off by saying, Let's, uh, let a man so consider us as servants. You haven't even told us what that servant word means. That word servant there in the Greek is literally huporetes. Uh, huporetes. Huporetes. It is a word that literally means under rower. Under rower. And your mind's probably going, okay, what is an under rower? And some of you are going, well, the only thing I can think of of rowing is a rower, rowboat, okay? You think of a rowboat. Well, think bigger than a rowboat and think New Testament times, you know? We're not talking about the little two-seat, you know, two-oar rowboat. We're talking about ships that move from one place to another across pretty tumultuous waters and what have you. And, and think, if you will, and picture in your head the oars that come out of each side of the ship that are, that are the oars just protrude from the ship. You don't see who's on the other end of the oar. You just see the oars out there. And then you see these oars in unison. And you don't, you know, you just get this picture, right? Paul says, I'm an under oarman. I'm an under rower. I'm an under rower. He's one who is within the confines of a ship, sitting on a seat on one side of the ship with an oar in his hands and rowing in concert with the direction of the cadence of who? His master, which maintains order among all the other under rowers. 
the picture of an under rower is very defining in that the under rower does not march to his own drum. He doesn't march to the own beat of his drum. To the beat of his own drum, I'm sorry. He doesn't march to the beat of his own drum because that would not work, right? You know, it, it's that guy, you know, that, that, you know, when you see a picture, you see a video of these, these ships going through the ocean. Who's the guy that is never in unison with everybody else? You know, what's his name, you know? How long is he going to last in there? You know, everybody's oars going forward. His is going backwards. He clank, 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 and he's just messing everything up. He's just messing up the process. If he, if that under rower chooses to stop rowing or to break from the rhythm of the other rowers, what's he going to do? He's going to create havoc. It's just not going to work. And so Paul says, I'm an under rower. Gang, we're under rowers. We have the master that's saying, row, 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 row. And we, we press on. We press on. We press on. We press on. With the rhythm, with the cadence of our master, we follow his direction. Again, you have to first settle in your mind. Is the master taking me somewhere or does he not know what he's doing? The one thing about the master is that the master knows and can see where he's going. The under rower just simply does what the master says. There's a time where the master rower will say, left side, lift your oars. And the whole left side of the boat will just lift its oars out of the water and the right side of the boat continues to go. And what are they doing? They're turning. But the under rowers aren't making that decision. It's the master who sees where he's going. So if your master can see the future, wouldn't it be great to follow his lead? God is omniscient, the Bible says. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at one time. That means he's, he's in the past. He's in the present. He's here in this place. The Bible says where two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in the midst. I've gathered in his name today. Anybody else? Yeah, he's here. Just a few hands went up, but hey, he's here with us. How about the rest of y'all? But here's the thing. He's here. Not just in the past, not just in the present, but he's also in the future. He's everywhere. And if he can see the future, if he knows how all this thing goes, if he knows how it all plays out in the end, guess what? I'm going to follow him. Because he knows the direction. If you are in the woods, if you're in the wilderness, who are you going to trust? The person that you went to the wilderness to take your journey with, or are you going to you're going to trust the guide that's been through it many, many times. You're going to follow the guide. He knows where he's going. He's been there. He's done it. He's bought the shirt. You simply are there to follow. That's what I am. That's what you are as under rowers of the Lord when he calls us to go. In grammar, the actual word huparetas, uh, 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 the, the word servant, literally in grammar is a subordinate noun. So even just in the grammar, it speaks of who we are. A subordinate noun, even in its grammar usage, it paints an accurate picture 
Because a subordinate noun is any person, place, or thing which is subject to the authority and control of another. And so Paul's saying, I'm in subject to the authority of my master, who is God. And so as Christians, we are to be literally under rowers who do not determine the course of, and direction of our lives, but we are simply to follow without rebuttal. Just follow. We might not know where we're going. We might not see the path. We might actually hit some rough stretches. And we might think, man, it's really rough. This master has taken us into some very rough waters. But be of courage. He knows where he's going, and he knows how to get through it. There might be difficult times. But know this, I'd rather go through difficult times with a master who knows how to get there than to go through smooth times without a master that knows what the future is. I'd rather go with the Lord. He says, so let a man so consider us as servants, as under rowers. That's who we are. I'm an under rower of Christ. And, and stewards. Let him also consider that we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required in stewards that a man or that one be found faithful. That one be found faithful. A steward, oikonomos, has nothing to do with pigs, has to do with this. It's like every time you use the word oikon, oiko, anything, and, I mean, because there's a few different words that, in Greek, that oiko, it's, you, that's the time you can use the pig part. But uh, an oikonomos is a manager. He's a master's deputy in regulating the concerns of, his, of the master's family. He's the oikonomos uh, is... He provides food for the household of his master. He sees that the master's house is served out in proper time and proper seasons. He sees that in proper, and also in proper quantities. He sees and it, he receives all the cash. He expends what is necessary for the support of his master's home. He keeps an exact account for his master's home for which he was obliged at certain times to lay before the master. He's supposed to now give an account to the master. He's a steward. You understand that you and I as Christians today, if God, if Jesus Christ is truly your master, you and I will give an account to him. You are a steward of his. You're a steward. You're a manager of of the life that is you. God, you're here, and God didn't create another one of someone else. He created you. And I know that might sound confusing, but as you sit here, there's some in this room right here that probably feel, I am insignificant. Really, if my life were to end, it really wouldn't matter to anyone. What really worth does my life add to this world and for that i just i come before you and i I plead with you understand god made you maybe you sit there and think but you know what god would have done so much better if he would have made two billy grams and one less of me really So you think God made a mistake when he made you? God doesn't make mistakes. If you think God makes mistakes, you've got a false perception of who God is. God made you. 
stop with this, I'm insignificant, and start with, wait a minute, God did make me. I'm going to do something here real quick, just a real quick exercise. Real quick exercise for us, and I, I want all of us to participate. At the count of three, I want all of us to inhale, and then I'll tell you to exhale, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Exhale. Did, were we able to do that? <coughs> if you were able to do that, that tells me that God is not done with you yet. Okay? God has a plan for your life. God is still working in and through you, and he has a radical plan for you. Oh, it might not be what you think it is, but do one of these and stand back and watch what God does in your life. Let him direct you through the seas of your life. Let him direct you in the paths of your life. And as he does that, as, as, as you allow him to do that, you manage this life that he gave to you. He gave you that breath. He gave you that health. He gave you all of the things that you have at your disposal in order to manage for him to glorify him, to bring glory to the master. Paul, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew says, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and then glorify your Father in heaven. And so here's what he's saying. If you are a light in this world, if you are lighting the world, not with your light, we're like moonies, you know? Not like moonies that you see in airports, but we're like moons. A moon doesn't generate light on, an, on its own, does it? A moon is simply a reflection of what? The sun. You and I are simply reflections of the sun. The son of God. You and I are simply reflections of the son of God. What, what causes us not to shine so bright? What gets in the way? Anyone. What gets in the way that causes our brightness to dim? What? The world. It's the earth. It's the world. It's the things in this world that dim us because we can't see the sun. We allow the, the, the world, the things of this world to obstruct our view from the Lord. Jesus says, whatever light you have, let it shine before men. Not that they'd give you glory, but that they would glorify me. My moon, what a glorious sun you have. What a glorious son you have. Here's the thing. Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and turn and direct their, their appreciation to the Lord and glorify God in heaven. Notice Paul says here, it is required in stewards that one be found. Notice he doesn't say successful. It is required, verse 2, it's required in stewards that one be found successful. Does God want you to be successful? Yeah, he wants you to be successful in your life. Is that the end game? Uh, notice he doesn't say, it is required in, student, or in stewards that one be found popular. doesn't say that. He doesn't say that you need to be popular. It is required in students that one be found accepted by everyone and well-liked doesn't say that either. Here's what it says. It is required 
in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful. Paul simply says that, that God is not requiring you to be anything else but faithful. I too often put on myself this pressure to effect change instead of simply being a medium, medium for that change, you see. I think that I have to make sure that someone gets saved. I may think that I have to force uh, you know, this you know, fruit in someone's life. Maybe I have to force, force fruit in my own life. I've got to force this. It's my job to force it. I too often think that God's going to judge me on the end product instead of being faithful in the process of working toward that end product. You see, if I get in my mind that I have to have a 600-member church before I go home to be with the Lord, then I'm, I'm shooting at the wrong goal. And if the church doesn't grow, what does that leave me? Whatever your goal is in life, whatever you think your goal is that you have to attain before you die, or your life is going to be, you know, a failure. You get into that trap, and all of a sudden you lose sight of God, and you lose sight of what it is that He wants to do in your life, and you begin to place more pressure on yourself to be something that God's never called you to be. Here's what's required in you. Just be faithful. You be faithful towards that end product. I don't know how big the church wants to, God wants the church to be. Maybe it's this size. Am I going to be faithful to this size? This is what I'm being, today I'm being judged on how it is that I'm taking care of you today. And tomorrow I'll be judged on whoever's in this church. Am I being faithful to them? I'm only going to be judged on the faithfulness of carrying out what it is that God's called me to be in the process. We think that we have to do something instead of just be faithful towards that end product. It can be illustrated real quick. and I'm running out of time. But it can be illustrated kind of in the, the Jonah-Jeremiah syndrome. I, I, I can call it that, Jonah-Jeremiah-type syndrome. Those of you who understand and have read anything in the Old Testament about Jeremiah, what you'll know is that you'll see that Jeremiah, for 40 years, starting at 17 years old, he actually thought, man, Lord, I'm too young. I'm too young to actually be you know, a prophet for you. And the Lord says, hey, don't let anyone despise your youth. You know, I'm the one who formed you in the womb. Before you were even created, I formed you, he says. Jeremiah chapter 1. He says, I know you're young, but don't let anybody, don't let that be the, the, the inhibitor from, from doing all that I've called you to do. You just do what I've called you to do. And so for 40 years, Jeremiah, he lives this life for the Lord. Oftentimes, they call him the weeping prophet because he's constantly crying. You know why? He, I, we outnumber his church. You know that? Jeremiah would show up on a Sunday morning, hopefully not late like I did today, but, but he'll show up on a Sunday morning. And you know how many people are going to be in his congregation? Goose egg, man. There's nobody going to be there. But for 40 years, he shows up because that's what God called him to do. Who in today's world would say, Jeremiah, successful? <laughs> we wouldn't. He'd go, dude, give it up. What are you doing? I think you've missed your call. 
Jonah, on the other hand, we go, Jonah, yeah, well, we know Jonah's story. Jonah, you know, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell him, hey, you know, you're going to be dust in 40 days. Jonah goes, I don't want to do that because I don't like the people of Nineveh. I kind of want you to make them dust in 40 days. And, and so Jonah says, well, you want me to go to Nineveh? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on a boat, and I'm going to actually take a cruise the opposite direction because if I don't go and I prolong it long enough, you're going to judge them because you're going to have to because they're that evil. So if I just don't go and talk to them, you're going to judge them. I'll let that be on my shoulders. I don't care because they're evil. So he jumps on a boat and he takes off. We know the story, right? He goes out and all of a sudden this big waves start coming up, start crashing over the boat. They start throwing things over. Jonah's down inside the deck sleeping, down by the under rowers. He's down there sleeping. What's he doing? He knows what's going on. And they get to a point where they're, they're perishing. They're all going to drown. And Jonah finally goes, all right, you know what? I know that it's because of me that this big tumultuous storm has come. God's judging. God's going to cause this boat to sink. And so here's the thing. He went up and he appealed to the people. And he says, listen, um, this big storm is because of me. Throw me over into the ocean. And, and the seas will stop, and, and you guys will be saved. And they go, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We're not going to be, our hands are not going to be bloody that way. And they keep trying to do different things, and finally they get to a point where they go, you know what, I don't care if our hands are a little bloody. If, you, if getting this place to get calm by casting you over is what's gonna, what it's going to take, we're going to do that. So they go, hey, you know what, Lord, please don't, don't hate us for this, but woo, there goes Jonah. Jonah's thinking, hey, all right, I don't want these guys to die. These guys are halfway decent guys. Here's the thing, but I hate Nineveh so much that, hey, maybe if I die in the ocean, well, God's still going to have to judge Nineveh. So it might cost me my life, but judge it, you know, God's still going to judge Nineveh. He goes into the ocean, and, oh, you know, a big fish comes and swallows him up. And Jonah, there he is. He's like, there's, there is a place of living in this life that is similar to living in hell, and that's in the waters, in the under the waters in the ocean, floating in the bile and the acidity waters of the belly of a great fish. God, if you help me get me out of this place, all right, I'll do what it is that you want me to do. I won't like it, but I'll do what you want me to do. Next scene that you see is God is telling the you know, well to puke Jonah up on the shore, and he does. Jonah, probably white with bleach because he's been in that acid. He's going, now everybody's going to look at him now, right? And he goes into the city and he's walking down through the city and he's crying out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet, I mean, how much, you know, passion does he really have? I don't want you to live. I know there's 2 million plus people here in Nineveh but I don't like you. 40 days. Maybe there was a little excitement in his life, hoping that they would, they would reject his call. But you know, the government of Nineveh turned and they said, hey, you know what? We're, we're wrong. We repent. And they repented. And, and God heard it. And God relented of what he was going to do and overthrow Nineveh in 40 days. And actually God forgave him. And Nineveh, and, and, and Nineveh was saved because Mo, or Noah went out. He, or, I'm sorry, Jonah went out and did what it was that God called him to do. And here's what happens. 
Two million people were saved. Where's Jonah? He's up underneath a tree, sulking and pouting and throwing a little spiritual temper tantrum before God going, I knew you were going to do it, God. I knew that if I went in that town, they would repent and you would save them. And that's just not fair because I hate those people. Two million people get saved. Let me ask you this. Who's going to be invited to the next pastor's conference to speak? Jeremiah or Jonah? Jonah, you saved two million people. Jeremiah, what are you even doing here, man? You know you're not really a pastor. A pastor can't be a pastor if he doesn't have a congregation. You got zeroed, Jeremiah. But Jonah, I know he had some little hiccups along the way. Hey, tell us the story again. Man, you're successful. No, Jonah's story actually ends very badly. It's just, it's just, it's just a depressing end to Jonah's, you know, book. He never really is happy that God saved those people. But we might look at that and go, well, Jonah had a much better ministry than Jeremiah. And yet, I don't think that's the case. I think Jeremiah had a much stronger ministry than Jeremiah ever thought. Or than, than uh, uh, Jeremiah had so much of a stronger ministry than Jonah ever thought he ever possibly could. In fact, when Jesus asked his disciples, he says, hey, who do people say that I am? They didn't say, well, they, some say Elijah and some say Jonah. They say, no, some say Elijah and, well, some say Jeremiah the prophet. Or others. Jeremiah is actually mentioned, in, that, 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 that's what Jesus would have been like. Listen, I, I, I'm out of time, but here's the thing. God has called you to be you today. God has called you to be you today. He says, he says with me, it's a very small thing. I'm going to finish with this very quickly. But, but with me, he says in verse 3, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring uh, to the light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. And so here's the thing. We look at that, and I go, wow, does that kind of sound like Paul was kind of being a little narcissistic here? Being a little, you know, over-spiritual? He says, look, at, did, did, you, did you catch it? He says, hey, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Or by a human court. Does this almost sound arrogant? And it's a very small thing for me to be judged by you guys, or even a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. In fact, I know nothing even against myself. You go, has this guy's head just gotten too spiritually big? Or is there more to it? Paul says, Yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. What he says here is that there's three courts that you and I are judged by. There's a lower court, there's a higher court, and there's a supreme court. The lower court is the judgment and the opinion of others. Paul says, I don't really care what other people think of me. It's not, that's not what drives me. The court of public opinion. Now, we do care about what people think about us, don't we? We do. All of us do. 
that you have combed hair in here today tells me you care about what people think. That you took a shower before you came in here today tells me that you care about what people think. That you put on, you know, decent clothes to come in here, that you put on clothes at all tells me you care about what people think. We care. But, but Paul says, you know what? It, it doesn't really matter what you think of me. That's not what drives me. Though I care about, and Paul does talk about how he, he doesn't like to be hurt. He doesn't like it when people say things against him and what have you. But here's the thing. Paul, Paul says, but that's not what drives me. What drives me is not what you think of me. He says, the higher court, he, he says, as, as I don't really care about the opinion of others, but in the higher court, that's the opinion that I have of myself. And at first glance, we, we seem to think, we, it, it would seem a noble thing to look at ourselves and be guided by the opinions that we have of ourselves. But let's take a closer look really quick at whether we should even trust our own selves. Why? Because listen, this is going to resonate with some of us. I think all of us. I am personally in my own life, I have found that I can't trust my own flesh because it will always seek the easiest and most convenient way. Does anybody resonate? Does that resonate with anyone? I do. I don't want to take the most difficult path. I've also found that though sometimes I'm harder on myself than others would be, It's not always together true. Think about this. If I say, man, after the service, man, I really blew this message. I'm talking to one of you guys. And one of you guys go, no. But, but maybe, maybe, I don't think it was this message because I, I think that there's some great things in this message that all of us can leave with. But here's the thing. There's been some messages that were just some really, really doozies. You know, that I, I just, I walk away and just go, wow, Lord, I just wasted a bunch of people's time. That was just not, that was not good. Lord, I don't want to do that again. I, I don't know, that message just didn't come out the way that I, had, I thought it was going to come out, Lord. And, I, and maybe if I talk to you and go, man, that was a bad message. I'm so sorry that you had to live that. And you go, no, 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 it was a really good message. It's one of the best messages I've ever heard you say. And that's happened to me before. No, it was one of the best messages I've ever heard of you. And I'm going, liar. <laughs> liar. In the back of your mind, you're going, oh, man, was that a stinker. But I'm, I'm there to give him a shot in the arm, you know. It, 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 here's the thing. You know, if, if you go to someone, and you might not identify with that because you don't give messages maybe. But maybe, maybe you go to someone and say, hey, uh, Wow, I really look fat in this outfit. And, and y- your friend goes, no, no, you look really cute in that thing. But in their mind saying, man, that's an overstuffed sausage right there, man. <laughs> you go, listen, 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 that's me, that's me. Here's the thing. These are my own personal things. My wife would never say this to me, so I don't think that my wife would say this. Bert would say this to me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> He would tell me what it is that he thinks I need to hear, but in the back of his mind, he'd go, no, you're an overstuffed sausage, dude. Here's the thing. <laughs> I've also found 
you know, in my life that I give myself more grace than I afford, that I don't afford to others. And every one of you guys do too, most of us. Yeah, you find it on a freeway, maybe on a road. You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off. You lay on your horn, maybe you yell at them, maybe you say things in the car that maybe you're not saying it to them, but you're sitting there under your breath going, man, what an idiot, where did you get your license? And then you kind of speed up, get around them. I don't know what it is in people that you have to speed up and get around because you want to look at what an idiot looks like. It just, I want to get up there because I want to see what does an idiot look like today. And you look at them. And, and while you're doing that, tell me if this doesn't happen to you. You're mad at them. You're not happy with them. And you're sitting up there and, and, and you're doing this and, and you get up there and all of a sudden something happens in front of you and somebody puts their brakes on and you turn around and go, oh, and you put your brakes on and somebody behind you has to jam their brakes on and they lay on their horn and flashes you the word, the number one signal, signal and, and you're sitting there going, oh, sorry, my bad. Didn't mean it. It was my fault. My fault. Sorry. And the guy just lays on his horn. You're going, come on, man. It was my mistake. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. And then that guy does that, what everybody else does. He gets in the other lane, comes up, and he wants to see what an idiot looks like you. And he's still yelling at you. And, and then all of a sudden you cop an attitude. Man, it was a mistake. Right? Right? Here's the thing. What, what happened from the time that you were mad at that other person who did it to you to the time when you did it to someone else? I want grace from you. But I want to dish out judgment on the one who did it to me. I can't ju- That's what Paul's saying. I can't judge my own self. And so I don't even look at the things in my life and judge it to myself. I'm going to leave that up to the Supreme Court, and that's the Lord. And so that's the point. He's going, I'm going to let God sort that one out. I'm going to make my decisions based upon God. You see how it all connects? I'm not going to live my life based on what you think of me, and I'm not even going to live my life based upon what I think of me. I'm going to live my life based upon what God thinks of me. Let that be our driving force. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need a master. The master that you're living by and with and for today is the wrong master. The master that you're living with today did not create you, doesn't know what makes you tick. And I want to introduce you to the real master. If you're here today and you've been a Christian for some time and you've never really truly made the Lord your master, today is the day. Let God be your master. Let God be your master. Don't don't settle for anything less than, than, than God's best. Don't waste another day. Don't waste another day. God built you. He created you. He gave you breath in your lungs for you to be you. Now listen to him and do what he's called you to do and watch but that he won't fulfill his work in your life. Don't live for you. Live for him. Truly be a slave of the master.